brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Straw Hut Media. Only two things are infinite the universe and human stupidity. And I'm not sure about the former. This quote was possibly said by Albert Einstein, maybe, or said to someone by Albert Einstein and then written down later, possibly. So, Clayton, this is take two. I forgot to press record, which is a fitting... No, I hit it now. (laughs) It's going. But I'm explaining to the listeners out here who are very interested Mm. that today's story is a story called The Fool... What is it called? The Story of the Foolish Young Muscleman. So, today's story is about a stupid person, and I, in keeping with the theme of the show, forgot to press record, so we're starting over. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We just got a good 30-minute so, test run to make sure that yeah. everything was good. And now Clayton knows how much I know about the history of Tibet, Nepal, and India. So the story today, Clayton. Mm-hmm. Welcome to Folklorica. Welcome to Folklorica. <laughs> <laughs> I'm your host, Maggie Bowles. And I'm your host, Clayton Stecker. And today we're coming to you with a story from Tibet. And um, the reason I chose this story is actually because I uh, I went to a yard sale not that long ago. And this guy was getting rid of all this really, really cool stuff. Mm. And he was just like giving it away. And he was really nice. He was like, he was gonna, he was a professor and he was retiring to the south of France. Like wow. actually... That's and he cool. had this like huge thing of books from like he was like obviously he was like an older skinny white English dude with long graying hair and a ponytail mm. like he was a very stereotypical man of the world if yeah. you will. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Picture um, him in your mind, but he was, and know that that picture you've created is correct. He was definitely wearing Birkenstocks, um, and I'll leave it at that. So anyways, I got a big pile of folktales from him, and one of them was this book called uh, Tibetan Folktales, and I uh, flipped through it, and there were some really good ones, but there was like, the story we're reading today is actually not from that book. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> but you did you did be good. you were inspired to tell a Tibetan story. But the reason I wanted to find a Tibetan story was because of this book. Okay. Okay. So you did you you went through that book and you saw wow this actually there's a lot of things that are interesting in here things that maybe I wasn't aware of and that inspired you to track down something in that same yeah, region. Yeah. Well, so the problem with so many of these like Eurocentric compilations of poetry from non-Western countries is that they end up sort of like really cringy, you know, mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. you read them and you're like, oh God, like this is just some like really excited white person who thinks like this is the most interesting thing they've ever seen and they have no idea what's going on. It's really embarrassing and racist and terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that sort of thing kind of comes up a lot. So the story today is collected and translated by a Westerner. Lieutenant Colonel Sir William <laughs> Frederick Travers O'Connor ICE. The fifth. <laughs> this guy lived from 1870 to 1943. So he was an Irish diplomat and an officer in the British Indian armies. He was a colonizer. Mm -hmm. But he did seem to be very interested in language and in the culture of the countries that he was invading. Which is better um, than we can say for most of the people of his generation who were exploring this is true. the land. This is very true. And he did end up being an interpreter most of the places that he went. Looking at his sort of biography, Tibet seems to be the place where he sort of discovered his interest in culture. Mm -hmm. You know, because he learned he learned to speak the language. And then from there, he became an interpreter and a translator in a lot of the other travels that he did. So, mm -hmm. yes, he was part of the military that invaded. But actually, I'm just going to say, yes, he was. Mm -hmm. Also, mm -hmm. he wrote this book. Yeah, he was the author of this book and a member of the British Empire. Yes. Another and India interesting borders thing. Tibet. Correct. Yes. India borders Tibet. But so this guy, Sir William Frederick Travers O'Connor, he basically rose through the ranks of the British army. But then after he did a bunch of stuff, he kind of fell apart, which is interesting. Like, so this book was published in 1906, uh -huh. and the invasion of Tibet was in, I want to say it was like 1903. Yeah, they call it the British Expedition to Tibet. They also call it the British Invasion of Tibet, and they also call it the Young Husband Expedition to Tibet. So I guess depending oh. on how you want to frame the situation. But so it started at the end of 1903, and it lasted until the end of 1904, basically. Oh, that's interesting. Um, and they, so they maintained a, a pretty, uh, I don't want to say solid relationship, but it seemed like England and Tibet, it was almost like a mutual understanding. Whereas all these other invading forces like China, obviously, constantly trying to claim control over Tibet. And then you've got Russia, who also sees that he sees it as a geographical advantageous uh, location. <laughs> So there's several countries surrounding Tibet that are all trying to claim a stake on it. And it seems like England managed to somehow not be the the worst of the bunch. And and somehow Tibet seemed to come back and rely on England a little bit uh, and have some sort of um, a healthy relationship in some degree. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's harder for anybody to be worse than China when it comes to Tibet. Absolutely. Like they've been 
pretty bad. And, you know, when I was looking up the, the you know, it is called the invasion of Tibet, and I'm sure it was not great. But mm. they and that's also... that's what the, the British are calling it. It's not even like right. what Tibet's calling it. Like, well, the British I, I are calling it. I think the British it. called it the, the Young Husband Expedition to Tibet, or the expedition, oh. the British expedition. I think they called it the expedition, and whereas, maybe... like, other people maybe called it the British invasion. Oh, okay. I'm assume, assuming that they called it, like, we know we invaded them. We were cool about it, but we invaded yeah, them. Yeah, it was an invasion. What? Yeah, it was an invasion. It was casual. What's wrong it was with so an invasion? casual. It was, we were basically invited. It was like an invasion, eh? An invasionito. <laughs> yeah. That it was, was more bad. like the Let's British invited into Tibet. That's what it was. <laughs> we RSVP'd to a party they weren't yeah. having. That's all it was. <laughs> yeah. So this guy, he definitely was a colonizer, but he was also surprisingly self aware. And in his intro, he said that as he was collecting the folktales, it was like sort of more difficult than he expected for a couple of reasons. The first being that a lot of the stories were imported from India or China. And so they weren't like local folklore in the way that local folklore is fun. The second reason was that he said some of the very best and most characteristic stories are unfit for publication in such a book as this. Yeah, trying to figure out what would be considered what, yeah, how, was how did it he sexy? Phrase it? Not, it's not taboo. Said, what did he say? Some of the very best and most characteristic stories are unfit for publication in such a book as this. Characterizations are unfit for publication in such a book as this. Almost sounds like he's tooting his own horn. Like, this book is too classy. For really? these like oh, weird... Oh, I see. So he's like, I see. Actually, you know what? I think that that might be true in that like he said something in another part about this is for scientific purposes. And so he was maybe like, this story is too dumb to be included in like a scientific book of folklore. But then mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. would think, why are you telling us this dumb story about the dumb guy? Yeah, exactly. You know? Because like, well, we are going to read this dummies. story about a really dumb guy. Yeah. Maybe, oh, yeah, yeah, maybe S- Lieutenant Colonel William Frederick Travers O'Connor. <laughs> <laughs> he has too many names. Yeah, he's got But actually, got the main reason... So many. The main reason I want to say it is because of the third reason, which is the self-aware reason. Mm-hmm. And he says, human nature being much the same all the world over... It was not always possible to find a suitable raconteur in a suitable mood for storytelling. A story told by a nervous or reluctant narrator loses half its charm. A good story must be natural and necessitates sympathy on the part both of teller and of hearer. Armed diplomatic missions and an official position, apart from all questions of difference of language and nationality, do not tend to elicit the ideal sentiments necessary for the establishment of complete mutual confidence." Interesting. So he's, it sounds like he's trying to check a lot of boxes for the stories, but he's so? also, he's also aware of, or he was, he's not with us anymore, I hope. I hope he's would, still with us. You do. I'd feel terrible he for be, him. He'd be a hundred and He was born in 1870. 50? He'd be 150. He would be 150 years old next year. Oof. I don't want to know what that looks like. Um, On July 30th of next year, he would be 150 years old. Happy birthday? <laughs> No, what do you call, what, I'm Googling this, what do you call 150 years celebration? <laughs> the second option was, what do you call 150 strawberries bunched together? <laughs> 
What do you call them? I don't know. I got to look it up. Okay, so the 150-year celebration is called a sesquicentennial. Sesquicentennial. And 150 strawberries bunched together is, drumroll please, a strawberry jam. It's a joke. (laughs) (laughs) Also, I don't get it. Because they're all bunched together. It's like a traffic jam. I know, but why 150? Why strawberries? Yeah. All right. Well, okay. (laughs) So happy birthday. So happy sesquicentennial, Sir William, etc. He also says in this intro, he says that he wrote them down as accurately as humanly possible. And he also apologized for having not improved upon them. So he says... He's, um, he's like constantly kind of talking shit. And then yeah, also... it's like all of these backhanded compliments. Totally, totally backhanded compliments. It's He's dishing these out left and right to, yeah. these, to these places that he is trying to, in a sense, celebrate by carrying on their stories and, and showing parts of the world that might never see them. But he's also like, but some of these stories are... Uh, but, uh, but then he also says that, like, some of the reason is that stuff gets lost in translation. And he's like, I'm just doing the best I can without taking any artistic liberties. For example, I was just listening to, you know, the podcast Throughline yeah, from yeah, NPR. Yeah. So they did this one about zombies. And the word zombie is from Haitian languages. And it, like, it's got this really rich folk background Mm -hmm. but the guy who got the stories from the people sort of just misunderstood the stories and like sort of sensationalized them and then it got like turned into this sort of like racist thing where like black people were zombies it's just like yeah yeah it's crazy anyways that's a whole other story yeah tune in next week when we cover (laughs) haiti (laughs) we should talk about zombies though that would probably be cool that would be cool so Before we get into the story. (laughs) Before we get into the story, which is called the story of the foolish young muscle man, we want to tell you that the word muscle man actually just means Muslim. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's all. That's all it means. It's just a word that means Muslim. All right. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. 
No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The story of the foolish young muscle man. There was once a young muscle man who lived with his poor mother in a small cottage in the outskirts of a large town. As the boy grew up, it was found that he was rather weak-minded and that he was continually getting himself into scrapes owing to his own folly and carelessness. And the naughty boys of the neighborhood used to take advantage of the poor young fellow and were constantly teasing him and telling him all sorts of absurd stories. It chanced one day that he went for a walk in a large meadow where there were a number of yellow flowers, and presently sitting down to rest, he began to gather a nosegay. When a young man passing by called out to him, wait, do you know what a nosegay is? Is it a flower? It's like a mini bouquet of flowers. It's like a bunch of little flowers mm. tied together. And it's either like as a gift or to cover up a smell. So it's meant to be smelly. So it's just mm-hmm. something that is a pleasant smelling thing. Would be, would That's been, literally exactly how they named it. It's a combination of nose and gay. Nose gay. Yeah. Anyways. Okay, moving on. When a young man passing by called out to him, Hello, what are you doing there? Do you know that the soles of your feet are all yellow and that is a sure sign that you're going to die at once? The poor young fellow was greatly frightened at hearing this and he thought to himself, Well, if I am going to die, I had better have a grave ready. So he set to work and soon scraped out for himself a shallow grave in the soft soil. And soon as it was ready, he laid down in it and resigned himself to death. (laughs) He really gave up. Just immediately, like, uh, I wish I could have been there to see this. Just someone passes by and goes, you have yellow feet. You're probably going to die. And then they go, toodaloo. And then they skip off. And then he's just like, well. He didn't say, he didn't say you're probably going to die. He said, you're definitely going to die. Yeah. He's like, you know, you're, you're basically dead. And so the kid was like, well, I don't want to leave a mess for anyone to clean up. Right. Which is actually kind of sweet. Mm -hmm. He was like, you know what? Let me save everyone the trouble. Let me dig myself a grave and just like get up in it. Yeah. And and, and no one's going to dig it better than me. I know my proportions better than anybody. I'm five foot four, 108 pounds. I know how deep this needs to be. That'd be my guess. It actually sounds pretty right. A few minutes later, one of the king's servants who happened to be passing by carrying an earthen jar full of oil for the king's palace noticed the boy lying on his back in the shallow grave. So he stopped and asked him what he was doing. The boy replied, The soles of my feet are turning yellow, and that, as you know, is a sure sign that I'm going to die. So I've prepared myself a grave, and I'm just waiting here till death comes. Oh, nonsense, replied the servant. You could not talk like that if you were really dying. Come, get up and help me carry this jar of oil for the king, and I will give you a hen for yourself. I'm just wondering why a jar of oil would be taken to the king, like what kind of oil this is. Do you have an idea? Olive oil. You think it's olive oil? Extra virgin? Extra virgin olive oil. You gotta grease those pans. So is it for cooking? You think it's for cooking? I think it's straight up cooking. Or... Okay. No, cooking. That's that's all it can be. What do you think? (laughs) (laughs) As you were saying that, it occurred to me that the oil could be for like oil lamps. That, That too could be true. But this seems like a very, like, why would you deliver just one? Oil lamps, there's always going to be, I mean, tons, right? That's why it seems weird. Like, this is a, if it's one guy bringing one jar of oil all the way to the Mm. king... And now, how big do you think the jar is? He's like having, he's hiring this kid who's half buried in the side of the road. <laughs> Which, why? Well, he's obviously just lazy and he's like, this guy's dumb. I bet I can get him to carry my oil. <laughs> if you were riding down the road on your horse and you saw this person half buried in the side of the road, 
you would you invite them to to assist you in anything you were doing or would you be like nope i'm good i'm good off of whatever he's he's doing right now i mean obviously it was like that guy's dumb i bet he'll carry my oil the whole way yeah i bet i can get that dummy to carry my oil and Mm. you know what if we read on we'll find out what happens next (laughs) and you know what turn the page So the foolish boy got up out of his grave and taking the jar of oil on his back, he walked along the road with the king's servant towards the palace. As they went along, he kept thinking to himself what he should do with his hen when he got it. As soon as I have got some eggs, thought he to himself, I shall set the hen to hatch them. And then I shall have a nice lot of chickens. And when the chickens grow up into cocks and hens, I shall send them in the market. And with the money I get, I shall buy a cow. And presently the cow will have a calf. And when the calf grows big, I shall sell both the cow and the calf. And with the money I get, I shall buy a nice little house. And when I have settled down in my house, I shall marry a wife. And after a time, we shall have a child. And as the child grows big, I shall have to take its education in hand. And I shall be very firm and judicious with it. And if it is a good child and does what I tell it, I shall be very kind to it. And if it is naughty and does not do what it is told, I shall be very stern and stamp my foot so. He really got carried away. I I related to this part of the story so much. So did I. I was like, damn, that's like every night when I go to sleep. That's as soon as face touch pillow for me. Yeah. It's just... It's just... Thinking everything out in very intense detail. So much so that you... You, you overthink it. You overanalyze. Do you think he's over? Do you think he's overthinking it right now? Uh, he's definitely counting his chickens before they've hatched, almost literally. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, but it's that's the thing. That's literally, what I relate to. It, is literally, that he, someone just went, and he doesn't even. That's the my favorite part about all this. Doesn't even have the hen yet. This is all mm-hmm. just him going. But once I get my hen, then it will do this, and this will happen, and this will happen, and then I'm going to die one day, and that's you know. That's Like when your mind just is allowed to run free. And so I relate to that very much. It's a hypothetical hen. Mm -hmm. And you relate to it too? Yeah. Oh, I do. Yeah. I, when I was reading it, I was thinking like, uh, amen, brother, this is where I'm at. Yeah. Where I'm at, which means maybe I'm a dummy. (laughs) I think in a sense, I think it's a spectrum. I think that we're all, we're all on the, the dummy spectrum. Well, I think what happens next is what makes him really the dummy. Oh, what happens next? And thus thinking, he stamped his foot so violently that the jar of oil slipped off his back and was smashed to pieces on the ground. When he saw this, the king's servant became very angry and asked him what on earth he meant by stamping his foot like that and breaking a valuable jar of oil which was intended for the king. The boy tried to explain how it occurred, but the servant would not listen and dragged him off by force into the king's presence. When the king saw them coming together, he asked his servant what he wanted and why he was bringing in a strange boy with him. The servant replied that he had entrusted the boy with a jar of oil intended for the king. And as they were walking along the road quietly together, the boy all of a sudden began to stamp his feet like a maniac and the jar of oil slipped off his back and got broken. The king asked the boy what he meant by his conduct. And the boy replied, Well, your majesty, your servant said that if I would carry this jar of oil, he would give me a hen. And it seemed to me quite natural to consider within myself what I should do with my hen when I got it. So I soon saw that by selling the chickens I could buy a cow, and that later on by selling the cow and her calf, I could get a wife and set up a house of my own, and that presently we should have a child. And I was thinking to myself how I should keep my child in order, and if it was naughty I should be obliged to stamp my foot very firmly in order to show that it was not to be trifled with. 
we've gotten to go through his thought process now <laughs> so many <Twice>. times <laughs> just in this story twice which i think maybe shows that they know that this is funny mm-hmm, you know what mm-hmm. i mean totally they they know where the jokes land like i was reading i think it was in a different book of i think it was in the tibetan book of folktales that i have that they uh sometimes couldn't finish writing down a story because something funny would happen and everybody would laugh hysterically for so long that they would forget to finish the story i have been in that writer's room before <laughs> <laughs> on hearing this ridiculous story The king was much amused and laughed very heartily, and he gave the foolish boy a piece of gold and told him to go home to his mother. So the boy went off towards his home, and as he got near to the house, he saw a strange dog sneaking out of the door, carrying in his mouth a purse full of money, which he had just picked up inside. On seeing this, the boy became very much excited and began calling aloud to his mother that a dog was making off with her purse. The mother, when she found what was up, was afraid that he would attract the attention of the neighbors to the loss of the purse, and that, in the excitement, someone else would chase the dog and get the money. This is really strange. Mm -hmm. I just want to back up. The mother's reaction. Yeah, the mother's reaction is strange. She's like, like, I imagine that the muscle man is coming home, he sees this dog, and he starts going like, Ma! Ma! Ma, this dog's trying to steal your purse, Ma! You know what I mean? <laughs> and she's just like, shut up, Johnny. Shut up. <laughs> shut up. You'll wake the neighbors. <laughs> you'll wake the neighbors. Then everybody's going to know I got money. And so she's worried that he's going to screw it all up by yelling that this dog has stolen her money, which is which is, which is is absurd. Yeah. So, so I mean. Uh, what will mom do? Uh, it's I can see that they're related. That's for sure. Or, I mean, but she does something kind of smart, which is about to happen. Oh, do tell. Hastily running up onto the flat roof of the house, she sprinkled some sugar over the roof and then called to the boy to come up as quickly as he could. Look, she said as soon as he arrived, what a curious thing. It has been raining sugar all over the roof of the house. Her son, who was very fond of sugar, at once set to work to pick up all that he saw. And while he was so engaged, the good woman slipped away and soon found the dog and recovered her purse. Sometime afterwards, the boy's mother arranged with a rich family who lived some miles away and who were not acquainted with her son's failings that the boy should marry the daughter of the house and that, in accordance with Tibetan custom, he should become a member of the bride's family. When all the preliminaries had been satisfactorily arranged, a party of horsemen arrived from the bride's house to greet the bridegroom and to bring him home. The boy dressed himself up in his best clothes, and after feasting the wedding party in the usual manner, he begged them all to go on ahead of him, saying that he would follow as soon as he had said goodbye to his mother. Towards evening, he set out by himself on horseback. It was a moonlit night, and as he rode down the road, he could see his own shadow traveling along beside him. He could not make out what the shadow was, but thought it must be some ghost or demon which wanted to do him an injury. So he urged his horse into a gallop in order to try and get away from it. But the faster he galloped, the faster went the shadow. And he soon saw that it was no good trying to escape. So in order to frighten the strange object, he took off his puggery and flung it at it. And a puggery or a puggery, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Mm-hmm. That is a turban. Mm, okay. So he took off his, so, his turban or his hat, basically, and threw it at his own shadow. Yes, because he has oddly 
never encountered a shadow before. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. This isn't the first time he's been out at night. But I mean, with this kid, anything's possible. It's true. He's he's a dummy. The fact that somebody decided that he should marry their daughter is already amazing. Well, it was his mom and she knew what she was doing. Oh, his mom arranged it. She was like, yeah, she was like, I got to find like a family that's far enough away that they don't know how dumb he is. Yeah. I mean, because there's just no way you introduce this kid to anybody and he's not wearing a boot on his head and he's got just shit all over himself like all the time. Like he's just disgusting and dirty and stupid. Like all the time. I think he's maybe not that dirty, but I do think... Why do you think he's dirty? Just because he's dumb? Yeah. Dumb people always (laughs) always doing dirty stuff. (laughs) Rolling in the mud. He buried himself. He spilled a jar of olive oil. That's why he's dirty. Because he fucking, he dug a grave for himself and then laid in it. Yeah. He thinks it rains sugar. He stamped his foot and spilled a giant thing of oil. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. He's just filthy. He doesn't know anything. He doesn't know anything. And yet somehow. Have you. Life is just playing out for him in a cool way. Have you ever been scared by your shadow? Um, No. Never. You? you never like were like walking and then you saw your shadow and like jumped a little bit because you were like, ah. Uh, no, no, not me. Not the shadow. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, me neither. Definitely I do not. see spirits all the time. All right. <laughs> but you're sure it's not your shadow? <laughs> <laughs> uh, sure is a strong word. I don't know. I, I'm easily right. tricked sometimes. Why? Are you afraid of your shadow? No, but I have like, I have seen it and like, well, I'm like, I'm walking and then like, I don't realize that it's going to be there. And then you see it out of the corner of your eye and then you get scared. But like, it only takes, like, I'm only scared for like two seconds. I get mad at my fine. shadow. Really? Yeah. I don't like the way it looks. You're like, let me alone. <laughs> no, it's more like, why do you look like Mrs. Butterworth? Aww. Why is the shape of you like that? What's wrong with me? Why do I have such big hips? <laughs> I always feel like my head looks real small. Yeah, exactly. Your t- your head is tiny, your torso's tiny, and then for some reason you just fucking hips and legs for days. And yeah, just- legs. My my legs are always real big. Mm-hmm. Is that just like a trick? Is that an illusion, or is it that we both have giant legs? Well, we both have giant legs. I think you and I are ninety percent legs. Speak for yourself. I'm legs and a head. As this produced no effect, he followed up the poogery with his cloak, and finally with all the clothes he had on, but without in any way frightening the shadow which still continued to follow him closely. So thinking to give it the slip, he jumped off his horse and ran along the road on foot until he got into the shade of a big poplar tree growing near the roadside. He's definitely naked by now, by the way. He's oh, naked. totally naked. naked. Little muscleman bits everywhere. Here he stopped to take a breath, and he noticed to his great joy that the shadow had disappeared. But on peeping out from the shadow of the tree, he was annoyed to find that on whichever side he looked, the shadow immediately showed itself also. So, thinking that the shade of the tree was the safest place to stay in, he climbed into the upper branches and very soon fell fast asleep. A short while after, a party of travelers happened to be passing by this road from the same direction, and as they came along, they were surprised to find a number of garments scattered about the roadway. So they picked them up as they came along, and presently they found a horse grazing beside the road. Him too they brought along with them, and when they arrived at the shade of the poplar tree, they all stopped and sat down on the ground to divide the spoil amongst them. Just then the boy woke up, and looking down he saw what was going on below, so he called out in a loud voice, I say I want my share too, you know. On hearing this voice emerging from the upper branches of the tree, the travelers were greatly alarmed. 
They thought it must certainly be a demon who lived in the tree and who wanted to share of the spoils. So they took to their heels and made off as fast as they could, leaving the horse and all the clothes behind him. The boy then climbed down from the tree, put on his own clothes, and mounting his horse, rode off to his bride's house. You know what he didn't do? What? Go and say hi to his mom, which was the whole no, damn he... plan. Oh, wait, he did it? No. He got he, he got naked from the shadow thing, climbed into a tree, got his horse, got his stuff, and then he just went, I'm going to my bride. The whole reason he even didn't go with everybody was because he wanted to say goodbye to his mom first. That's where he was going. Huh, you're so right. What a dummy. What a dummy. Just totally <laughs> redirected. Well, he didn't even go home and see his mom. The whole the well, whole reason this last adventure for him happened was to say goodbye to mom, and he didn't even do it. I didn't even it. realize. What a dummy. When he arrived at the house, the parents of his bride hurried out to greet him, and after asking him why he was so late, they led him to the room where the wedding feast was laid out. All the friends and neighbors from round about were gathered there ready to share in the feast and to offer their congratulations to the bride and bridegroom. During the progress of the feast, the young muscle man, who was of a very kindly disposition and very fond of his mother, kept thinking to himself how he could save something nice for her to eat from amongst so much plenty. So he picked from the table a narrow-mouthed copper vessel and concealed it in his lap, and whilst eating his food, he every now and then dropped into it some particularly succulent dainty, which he thought his mother would enjoy. Presently, however, he inadvertently thrust his hand right into the vessel, and to his horror, he found that he was unable to withdraw it again. In this awkward predicament, he was unable to eat anything, and the bride's parents, noticing that he no longer partook of any food, kept pressing him to have a little more. The young man was still hungry, but was obliged to refuse all their offerings, saying that he had already eaten enough. So because his hand stuck in the thing, he can't eat anymore, or do you think that because of the way people perceived left-handed people, that you're like not allowed to use your other hand? Because I'm assuming he's right-handed. Mm. You know? Yeah, I think like, you're right. Yeah, like, I don't think he was reason allowed to eat he... with his left hand. I mean, but to be fair, he is a dummy. So maybe yeah. there's just no reason he's not eating anymore. He just assumes he can't because the hand he eats with is stuck in a vessel. <laughs> <laughs> Like if you lose your fork and you're yeah. like, well, I can't eat anymore. Well, can't, no gone. more. No more for me. It's closed. Towards evening, when the feast was completed, the guests withdrew and the boy was left alone with his bride. And she began asking him what the matter was and why he had been behaving so strangely during the banquet. He was at first too shy to tell her what had happened. But after much coaxing, she elicited from him the fact that his right hand was confined in the neck of the copper vessel. Never mind, said she. There is a large white stone lying at the foot of the staircase. You'd better slip downstairs in the dark, and by beating the vessel against the stone, you will soon succeed in freeing yourself. The young fellow thought this was a good idea, and he went off quietly down the staircase until he detected what he thought was a white stone lying near the foot of the steps. So, creeping up to it, he raised his arm and brought down the copper vessel with great force upon the white object, shattering the vessel and leaving his hand free. But to his horror, the stone, instead of being hard, gave way, and a muffled groan issued from it. And upon examining the spot, he found that instead of striking a stone, he had delivered a violent blow upon the gray head of his bride's father, who, overcome by his potations during the wedding feast, had fallen asleep at the foot of the stairs. It's dangerous to everyone's health when you're a dummy. I mean, his wife was pretty understanding. She was like, don't worry, dummy. 
I've got a solution for you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We keep a white stone at the foot of the stairs for some fucking reason. For this reason. <laughs> there would be, it's a great opportunity to somehow shatter a copper pot, which I feel like copper. Copper doesn't shatter, doesn't does easily it? easily shatter, which is weird. But apparently it does here. But again, maybe lost in translation, you mm-hmm, know. Mm-hmm. The young man was terrified at what he had done and feeling sure that he must have killed the old man, he decided to flee from the house. So he opened the door and ran off into the night. After running for some distance, he reached a neighboring farm, where, as it happened, a large honeycomb had been left in the corner of the courtyard. The boy, not knowing what it was, lay down upon this and fell fast asleep, and soon smeared himself all over with honey. Later in the night, he woke up feeling very cold, and creeping into a shed close by, which was used as storage for wool, he lay down upon the wool and slept until morning. He woke with the first gleam of dawn, and in the early morning light, he saw that he was all white and woolly. And in his simplicity, he believed that, as punishment for his wickedness in killing his father-in-law, he had been turned into a sheep. So, under this impression, he ran out of the courtyard and joined a flock of sheep, which were grazing on a neighboring hillside. (laughs) (laughs) What are you picturing? How he's just (laughs) pretending to be a sheep? What the noise he's making? (laughs) 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 He wandered about with the sheep all day, feeling very miserable, and trying to accommodate himself to the manners and customs of his new companions. And when evening came, he accompanied them into the fold, where they always spent the night. About midnight, some robbers came into the fold, and getting in, amongst the sheep felt about for a good, fat, heavy one. And finally, finding that the boy was the heaviest of them all, they proceeded to carry him off. One of them hoisted him up onto his back, and they carried him along for some distance until they reached the banks of a small stream. Here they halted, and laying him down upon the ground, they began to make preparations for cutting his throat. This it's trial so much, proved rather... so much of me that... That just thinks that he's just being carried off and he's just doing his shitty sheep impression the whole time. Like the images in this one. story is like he's just he's just a person that's been thrown over a shoulder and he's covered in honey and he's covered in wool and he's probably going blah. <laughs> he's just and they throw him down on the banks of a stream. Meanwhile, these people who are also like must not be super smart because they are definitely carrying a man who is sticky with honey and covered in wool. Yeah. Do you think he's still holding the posture of a sheep that's being carried through all of this? Like, is he is he in character? <laughs> he's definitely in character. He's method. The trial proved rather too much for the nerves of the young man, and forgetting his role of sheep, he crawled out in a shrill voice, Please don't kill me, kind robbers. On hearing this, the robbers were very much frightened and ran off as fast as they could. And the boy, thankful to have escaped from this danger and being thoroughly worn out by the exertions and exposure of the last 24 hours, returned to his bride's house. There he found that the old man, though sorely hurt, was not dead, and having explained all the circumstances of the case, he was freely forgiven and taken back to the household. After living for some years, very happily with his bride, he thought they would like to make a little money for himself by trading. So having procured a good stock of merchandise, he set off for India in hope of making a good profit on his goods. On the way, he halted one evening at a large house. The landlord received him very hospitably and made him quite comfortable. And during the conversation which followed their evening meal, the master of the house began telling some very tall stories, some of these stories being rather too wonderful for belief. The young man bluntly said that he could not believe them. Thereupon, the landlord replied, 
I can prove to you that I am telling the truth by showing you a stranger thing than anything which I have hitherto related. I will bet you that when night falls, a lantern will be carried into this room by a cat instead of a servant. The young man was amused at his host's boasting, and he said, Very well, I am prepared to bet you anything you like, but this will not happen. Very good, said the landlord. If this does not happen, I will hand you over my house, my merchandise, and everything I possess. But if it does, you will forfeit all your baggage, animals, and merchandise to me. And so the bet was arranged. Now this was a regular trick of the landlord's, who had a tame cat which had been taught to carry in a lantern in her mouth every evening, just at dusk, and he was accustomed to practice this deceit upon unwary travelers, and by this means to secure their goods and whatever property they possessed. Sure enough, just at dusk, a large white cat entered the sitting room, holding a lighted lantern in its mouth, and the unfortunate young man was obliged to hand over to his host everything he possessed in the world. And finding himself with no money or goods, he decided to stay on in the house as a servant. After the lapse of one or two months, his wife grew anxious about him, and knowing that, from the infirmity of his mind, he was likely to get himself into some scrape or another, she decided to set out herself to see what had become of him. So she disguised herself as a man, and taking with her a few ponies laden with wool, she started off to follow in the tracks of her husband. After several days, she arrived at the house where her husband was now employed as a servant, and meeting him in the courtyard, she learned from him all that had happened. So she bade him hold his tongue, and she herself entered the inn and asked for a night's lodging. During the evening, the host got talking, and in the course of the conversation, he made her the same wage as he had done to her husband some time before. Already we see that the wife is substantially smarter than the husband. Oh, absolutely. But just like mom, she understands how dumb he is and yeah. forgives him for all of his follies. And just tries to help him out because... Mm -hmm. He's not a bad guy. Do you think he's she's a convincing a man? <laughs> I don't know. I hadn't thought about it. Well, uh, I just need a room for the night. Uh. <laughs> That's, well, I'm about to have the opportunity to give her her man voice. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let's hear it. Well, said she, that sounds a very strange story. I can scarcely believe it possible you can have a cat so well trained as to be able to carry in a lantern. But I will think over what you say tonight, and we will see about making the bet tomorrow morning. Next morning at breakfast, she said to her host, I have thought over what you said to me yesterday, and I am now prepared to make a bet with you that the cat will not carry a lantern into his room at dusk this evening. So, the bet was concluded upon the same terms as before, and the lady privately told her husband what he was to do. So in accordance with the instructions she had given him, he caught three mice and concealed them in a little box, which he placed in the bosom of his robe. When evening approached, the landlord and the lady seated themselves in the supper room, waiting to see whether or not the cat would appear as expected, whilst the husband hid himself in a corner of the courtyard just outside the door near where the cat was accustomed to pass. Just at dusk, the cat, carrying the lantern in its mouth, began to cross the courtyard towards the door of the room where it was expected to bring the light. And when about halfway across the yard, the husband released one of the mice from the box, which he had hidden in his robe. The mouse scampered off across the courtyard, and the cat gave a violent start, and was on the point of pursuing it when its training overcame its natural instincts, and it allowed the mouse to escape. 
It reluctantly continued its way towards the house, and scarcely had it started to go on when the husband released a second mouse, which also scampered off right in front of the cat. This time, it was all the cat could do to refrain from following so tempting an opportunity. It paused with great indecision, but again, its training standing it in good stead, it pursued its way towards the house. Just as it was reaching the door of the house, the third mouse was released. This was more than the cat could stand. It dropped the lantern upon the threshold, bounded across the courtyard, and seized the mouse just as it was entering its hole. Meanwhile, the landlord and the lady, having waited until long after dark, the landlord was reluctantly obliged to own that he had lost his bet. So he handed over to the disguised merchant not only his own property, but also the merchandise, which he had previously won from her husband. And the two, carrying their possessions with them, returned to their own home, where they lived happily ever afterwards. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So, this story has a happy ending. Mm-hmm. Which is nice. Is it? Yeah. What's you not happy You don't feel like some it? part of you is just like, why did it all work out? I feel like I try very hard to be an intelligent person in most of my decisions and not a dummy and life just feels hard sometimes well that's interesting maybe the um maybe one of the morals in this story is that brains is not necessarily what's important but the doing but the being a kind person is because he may be dumb but he is consistently kind that's true. He is always very nice. He even calls them kind robbers when they're about to cut yeah. his throat. Yeah. He's like a very nice guy, even though he's a dummy. And so maybe could that be a moral of this story? Kindness above all else, you mm-hmm. know? And he does show this um, really interesting level of adaptability. No matter what mm. his circumstance, if someone throws him, you know, for a loop, he just goes, okay, and then 
Like even at the, like just deciding to bury yeah. himself or he's like, well, I guess God's punishing me because I killed yeah. my father-in-law. So I guess I'll I'm a sheep a now. Sheep. I'm a or sheep now. he loses all of his stuff to That's this actually, innkeeper. And then he's like, but are you hiring? Because now I'm, bo- I'm poor and he becomes yeah. a servant. He's a super go with the flower. Yeah. And I think that is, is the secret to life. Is that a Buddhist idea, you think? Like, is he is he enlightened? He is a Muslim in the story, you know, although mm-hmm. like religion does not come up at all. So why is he a Muslim? Like there is no yeah. connection between him being a Muslim and the story like that never comes up in the story except to call him a Muslim. Yeah. And according to our boy, William Frederick Travers. Sir William, etc. I mean, he collected this story in his travels. So this is a story told by Tibetan people about a foolish young Muslim. Right. So there could be so he was, Tibetan themes, but the He characters. was likely talking to a Buddhist Tibet, Tibetan mm-hmm. because the Buddhists are the majority mm-hmm. and Muslims and I think Christians are the minorities. Yeah. So, so maybe are they there's making an element fun of, of Muslims? enlightenment in his foolishness. Mm. But are they, think, do you think they're making fun of Muslims? I mean, I mean, obviously everyone else in the story is probably also Muslim and they're fine. They're normal people. That's true. This is just one particular individual who happens to be Muslim, but is a fool. That's a very good point. But everybody's very nice in the story. Everybody's very mm-hmm. forgiving, which I mm-hmm. think is obviously also a Buddhist thing. No suffering, no pain, no. It's like trying to, to have sent, uh, ascend to some level above all of that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he does suffer a little bit. You know, he thinks he's a sheep for a while. That's unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, unless his life was like perfectly simple. Like that was the happiest he'd ever was. He's like telling his kids years from now. He's like, there was this weird like two weeks where I was a sheep. And you know what? I think what? it was actually only 24 hours. Oh, it was only like a day. Yeah. Oh. He fell asleep. He thought he was a sheep. He hung out with the sheep all day. And then they all went into like a barn at night. And he was like, okay, I'll go to the barn. And then he got stolen. He's lucky. He, I mean, that could have been the rest of it. Can you imagine if those robbers never showed up? Like he could yeah. have just been He would have like, been a sheep still. He'd still be a sheep. It's like, <laughs> And then the, the shepherd who comes to their, their flock the next day and is just like, there's like a dude roaming around in my flock. <laughs> He's, he's not just like doing all anything. Sticky. He's covered <laughs> yeah. in wool for some reason. He's just going blah everywhere. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's I mean, super he's super weird. He seems harmless. I don't know. He's just eating grass or whatever. I think it's fine. So is it possible that this story, the main point of the story is just to make people laugh? It feels like it, because it's very funny. It is funny. It's like it's like they gathered up all the stupid things like tropes even of like ways people can be stupid and like mm-hmm. put them all together in one place like someone tells him that he's dying so he's like i'm dying and it's like that's like a thing that i feel like has come up before mm-hmm. and then like he gets like carried away in his imagination and like screws something up but everything's okay and then what happens next he um gets his hand stuck in a jar that's the thing. So it's just like all these like tropes of stupidity that they're just like rapid fire. Or do you think that what if he heard this guy, Sir William, etc., heard the story a couple of different times? And like, do you think he composited this story? Or do you think it's just a really long story about one person's stupidity? 
I don't know. I mean, he does make the point of saying he didn't want to take any liberties with the stories he collected. That's very true. He, he, he felt the need that. to like declare that. He's like, oh, just so you know, I didn't I didn't write these. These are just things I heard. I don't know. I think what we're digging out of it morally is probably a, a part of why the story was told. But it is just riddled with slapstick humor. It's a comedy. Right. It's totally a comedy. Blah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why sheep noises make me laugh so much. They're very funny. I like watching those YouTube videos where they scream. Yeah. Oh, my God. I watch them all the time just for They're fun. so funny. So morally, we think so morally, that it's yeah. uh, being kind above all else and then also an adaptability uh, to any circumstance. And just a comedy. And a comedy. And, and it's just just a good old-fashioned comedy. Entertainment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just a good old Tibetan entertainment because... Tibetan people in the culture, there's a lot of comedy in there. Like the Dalai Lama, funny guy. Yeah. Do you have a do you funny have a fun guy. quote of his that you'd like to share with everybody? You know, I found this really great one about him talking about farting, but it's not it doesn't translate well. So I also I found this one where he was um he was in Alabama in twenty fourteen and uh it was bright outside and so he had one of his monks was holding up this um umbrella to shade him Mm -hmm. and so he like he called him closer because he was with the mayor or something of of whatever town he was in and so he said come closer it can cover us both and then um as they were moving together he asked the monk to like hold it up higher and then he said i am a marxist i am a socialist one individual must share with another and then he turned to the monk who was like holding up the umbrella and he said you're the exception. <laughs> and then he laughed. Is that funny? I think it's funny. That's pretty funny. He's a funny guy. He also, he does an impression of Trump. He does? Have you seen him do his int- impression of Trump? No. Yeah. Can you I'll do that- Dalai Lama doing an impression of Trump? I mean, it's not much. He basically, I'll, I'll, put the, I'll put the link up also in the show notes, but he just sort of like does like a thing of what his hair looks like. Mm-hmm. And then he says he has a really tiny mouth. <laughs> <laughs> he does have a tiny mouth. Uh, so, that's so funny. He does good. his impression of his hair and then just says he has, I have a tiny mouth. Yeah. And it's wild. It's wild to me that the Dalai Lama is funny and that Tibetan people are very funny, even though Tibet has like this super long history of just getting fucked with. Mm -hmm, You know? mm -hmm. A lot of oppression left and right from like every outside power. You were gonna tell me about some of the terrible things that have happened. To the Dalai Lamas because yeah well um well obviously the way that China views the Dalai Lama is not is not in a favorable light basically the Dalai Lama represents the last hope for the the rebellion uh, f- for the sake of Tibetans' freedom so China has obviously been trying to just I mean as much as they can eliminate Tibetan culture from itself and even in teachings now I I mean I watched a documentary about uh, what Tibet has gone through. And in schools, I think up to the 80s, like children are not taught Tibet history as actual history. They're taught Chinese history and Tibet the legend. You know what I mean? Like Tibet is is treated as like this mythology almost. Like it's not even given proper due or in in reality in their (laughs) their teachings. Proper due. (laughs) 
Not even given proper due. And so, obviously, the Dalai Lama being chosen by, in their mind, God and representative of Tibetan independence, China views him as a a thorn in their side, I guess we'll say. And so, there's- A challenge to their supreme authority. Absolutely. And so, all they want really is just what Tibet has, which is they're valued at about $130 billion in minerals. So, there's the Dalai Lama, but then there's also the Pension Lama. And the Pension Lama decides who the next Dalai Lama will be or, you know, knows how to find them, I guess, because that's really how it works. Dalai Lamas are reincarnated and then they have to go and find whoever the reincarnated living next Dalai Lama is. So the pension Mm -hmm. Lama, apparently in 1995, the next pension Lama was found, but he was in China. He's a little boy. Mm -hmm. China finds this boy and the boy is never seen again. So Disappeared. Disappeared, like totally gone. Like there's no sign of him anywhere. I mean, that no one knows if he's dead. No one knows if he's alive. He's just straight up gone. But now China's tried to say that they have their own pension lama who is going to yeah. find the next Dalai Lama. But now the real Dalai Lama, stick with me, is saying <laughs> <laughs> that he will not be reincarnated in a country that does not have independence. So they're thinking that the next Dalai Lama will be born in Nepal or India. And I think there's a Oh, third so the country. next one's not going to be born in Tibet is what they're saying. Yeah. And all of them have oh. been born in Tibet, except for, I think, the second or the third one, which was born in Mong- Mongolia. But yeah. this one will definitely not be born, according to the Dalai Lama, who's like, and he's even saying he might not even be reincarnated as a human. At all? At all. He's saying, I might go... No, he might be reincarnated. I mean, they believe they will be reincarnated. But he might actively try to be reincarnated as an insect or an animal, whatever benefits sentient beings more. Wow. Yeah. This is new information about the reincarnation part, about him choosing maybe not to be a human. Yeah. And it's all because of China. Fucking China. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Like, this is obviously coming from the the relationship and language of spirituality and God and the universe and all of that. And then China as a political party is being so oppressive that that spirituality is being rerouted and redirected to respond to it. It's just that crazy. It's crazy. Do you want to hear... A trippy little passage from the Diamond Sutra, which is from one of the five main traditions of Buddhism, the Mahayana Buddhism. It's from this uh, writing called the Prajnaparamita. Mm. Probably did that wrong, which means the perfection of wisdom or transcendent wisdom. Yes. It's this, uh, it's this thing of eight, eight different books or sutras. And at the end of the first sutra, which is called the Diamond Sutra, The end of the 32nd chapter, which is the end of the whole book, Buddha says, Like a tiny drop of dew or a bubble floating in a stream, like a flash of lightning in a summer cloud or a flickering lamp, an illusion, a phantom or a dream, so is all conditioned existence to be seen. Ooh, I like that. Thank you for listening. Today we read the story of the foolish young Musulman or Musulman, uh, a folk story from Tibet, collected and translated by Lieutenant Colonel Sir William Frederick Travers O'Connor. 
Thank you to the Dalai Lama for his work. Thank you to my lizard, Bean, for sitting patiently in my lap the entire time that we recorded this. Clayton, do you have any thank yous? Yeah, I'd like to thank you for agreeing to do this. (laughs) I'd like to thank the listeners at home for uh, getting through this with us. And I'd like to thank Wikipedia, as always. Oh, thank you, Wikipedia. Wikipedia. We thank Wikipedia every time. All the time. Using it all the time. How can we not? Donating all the time. Keep them up and running. All the time. Don't keep scrolling. Donate. Yeah, and I'd like to thank the internet in all of its glory for giving us access to things that we might otherwise have to go to a library to find. I agree with that. This has been a special episode where we spoke uh, via Skype. Mm-hmm. So, this is our first remote episode. And this is episode number eight. It's uh, the holidays. So we're going to take a little break after this episode. We're going to start researching some new stories. Give us your feedback. What did you like? What didn't you like? What countries would you like to hear stories from? What kind of stories have you heard? Thanks for tuning in. You guys are great. Uh, Clayton, anything else? Be kind to each other. Or as Bill and Ted said it, be most excellent to each other. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. And now for your moment of Frank and Nancy Zenatra. I know I, know I stand, stand in line until you think you have the time to spend an evening with me. And, and if we go someplace to dance, I know that there's a chance you won't be leaving with me. And afterwards we drop into a quiet little place and have a drink or two. And then I go and spoil it all by saying something stupid like I love you. You laughed Perfect. through that whole thing. No, you no, it wasn't. It was so bad. That was so sweet. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 